Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So in this series, what we're thinking about is what it is that we believe as a church. And you remember in the previous episode, uh, it laid out uh, a very uh, introductory and in summary form, a covenant theology that is a, uh, a painted for you a picture of the unfolding story of God's relationship with his people as it begins in the garden in Genesis chapter, chapter one and two and uh, progresses through the history of the scriptures. Uh, you'll recall that um, the relationship between uh, God and his people is characterized by a series of covenants, which is which are made with uh, Adam, uh, with Noah uh, in the days of Moses, sorry, in the days of Abraham, with Abraham in the days of Moses and um, and then David, uh, probably after the return from exile in the, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and of course the new covenant in Christ. And in and among those, of course, you've got reiterations of the covenant in the days of uh, other patriarchs like uh, Isaac and Jacob and so on. But those are the big moments, the big punctuation marks, so to speak, uh, in history, uh, those major figures. And one of the reasons for articulating a covenant theology in that way is it gives us basically some scaffolding, a framework through which to view the Bible, which allows us to take account properly of everything that the Bible says, because it, if you like, it's, this is the scaffolding the Bible itself gives us. It's the picture the Bible itself paints of how God's relationship with uh, humanity and with all creation unfolds over time. That in turn then allows us to ask other doctrinal and ethical questions by placing them in their proper context. And that's what I want to do in the remaining uh, uh, episodes in this series. I want us to be able to think about other doctrinal areas uh, in the context of that covenantal picture of God's dealings with the world so that we can get some answers which I think may be more robust than the kind of proof texting approach that is often taken. And we're going to begin with the doctrine of salvation. That is, what is it that God has done to save us, his people, from our sins and from their consequences, deliver us from death and condemnation and sin and hell and bring us to life in him? What is it that God has done? And you already know, in one sense, the answer to that question. Uh, God sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, out of his grace and his love for us to die in our place, to suffer as a sacrifice for us, uh, to suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sins, to be raised to new life so that we're raised with him and we share his new life with him so that we anticipate uh, glory in his presence forever and we are his son's male and female sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus now. You know, those are the kinds of things that the doctrine of salvation would articulate. But there's a great deal more to it. And I want to uh, dig around in this covenantal outline and highlight a few of those things for you. So without further ado, let's just jump in to um, Adam. And we'll begin just looking briefly at that and then think, okay, what, what does the uh, covenant with Adam and God's interaction with Adam uh, in those very earliest days of the scriptures tell us about what God is doing to save his people. Well, the first thing you notice about Adam is that he is created by God. This sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it's something that can be very easily forgotten in uh, a lot of the discussions about um, the relationship between human action and divine action in salvation. There have been controversies over the years about the relationship between God's will, God's choice, God's action, God's sustaining and sovereign power on the one hand, 
and human choices on the other. And there have been some who have said pretty much uh, unequivocally that God's decision about uh, whom to save is contingent in some way on the human decision about whether or not to trust in Christ. It's as though God uh, is going to save his people by grace, but before deciding what to do and whom to do it with, while he's sitting around waiting for an independent and uh, unconstrained decision of those human agents to follow Christ, to trust Christ, and then he'll decide to save them. Well, a moment's thought about God's relationship with Adam casts significant doubt on that picture, doesn't it? Because what you realize is that right from the beginning, at the most basic metaphysical level, everything that exists in the whole of creation, all the stuff you see around you, all the people you see around you, certainly Adam and Eve themselves, and all the things that are done in creation, all the decisions of human beings in creation, all come, all of them, from the will of God. Nothing is independent of him in the whole of creation, for the simple reason that he's the creator and everything else is created. What the doctrine of creation establishes is, establishes is this absolute ontological dependence of everything on God. That is, everything depends for its being on the living God. So it's simply inconceivable that any human being could make a choice to do anything at all unconstrained by God's will, unimpacted by God's power. There are no things in the created order that are independent of God, and therefore there are certainly no choices of people to follow Jesus that are independent of the living God. And just seeing how the story of scripture begins with the doctrine of creation and the creation of Adam and Eve highlights that. Obviously, God knows and brings about Adam's actions and the actions of every other human being, whether they choose to follow Christ or not. Obviously, he does, because he knows and brings about everything in the created order. Nothing exists apart from his will and apart from his power. In one sense, that's another way of talking about God's grace. We sometimes think of God's sovereignty and power over creation and God's grace as existing in somewhat different theological boxes. But really, if they're in different boxes, they're certainly closely related boxes. God is gracious in calling all things into existence. And so um, the doctrine of God's kindness in causing us to be reconciled with him through his son extends back beyond just that decision that you may have been may have made or that that series of decisions and uh, convictions that you came to through being raised as a Christian in a Christian home it extends back way beyond that to the fact of your existence in the first place our being our life everything about us is a gift of God gift of God's grace. Now, it's evident in uh, the account of Adam and Eve that God's grace persists even after the fall. Um, You see this, excuse me a second, my voice is slightly flaky today, just going to lubricate it slightly if I can. Um, uh, Even after the fall, 
when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, you see manifestations here of God's grace. Uh, he clothes them with animal skins towards the end of Genesis 3. Um, it seems from Genesis 2 that they could be put to death immediately, and they do suffer a kind of death immediately of being cast out of the garden, but the physical death doesn't ensue so quickly that they're not able to have children and to work the ground. And although the uh, childbearing and uh, was no doubt painful, as Genesis 3 suggests it will be. Um, although their relationships are, are uh, filled with tension, and indeed Cain and Abel's relationship with hatred and murder, and although um, working the ground would have been painful, none of that is impossible. God's grace in the uh, period of time after the fall extends to making and keeping uh, human life within the realms of possibility, even though it is still within the realms of uh, a painful experience. There's even a hint, uh, some interpreters have suggested that the fact that um, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them, uh, there's a hint there of the animal sacrifice that will be part of the picture of how God shows grace to them in the future. But certainly grace is evident uh, in the way that God continues to relate to and to sustain uh, Adam and Eve and their offspring, Cain and Abel and, and later Seth, after the fall. Um, it's even evident, actually, in the way that God deals with Cain, the first murderer, um, placing a mark on him so that nobody should uh, touch him because he's so um, terrified for his life. What you also see here, and this is still just thinking about um, the relationship between God and Adam as it develops through these turbulent first few chapters of the Bible, is that although everything is a manifestation of God's grace from beginning to end, even creation itself is an act of God's kindness, nonetheless, Faithfulness is required of Adam and Eve and of every human being as a response to the grace of God. Um, when um, uh, God spoke to Adam and said, you shouldn't eat of this tree that's in the middle of the garden. I give you all these other trees. There's an act of God's grace again. But you shouldn't eat of this tree. Adam is supposed to trust God. He's supposed to believe God's word. In the day you eat of this, you'll die. And believing God's word will necessarily entail acting in accordance with it. You can't believe that eating this fruit will kill you and then just go ahead and eat it. That's just not comprehensible for a human being to do. And so what's required of Adam is faith, trust in the word of the living God, which manifests in faithfulness. And indeed, in uh, both Hebrew and Greek, the words for faith and faithfulness are the same word. There isn't a different word for faithfulness in Greek. It's pistis, the same as the word for faith. And the same, same um, is true in Hebrew. So again, you see what, what you find established in this very first relationship between God and his people, Adam and Eve, in the garden, is uh, this principle of first God's grace initiating everything. And of faith and therefore faithfulness being required of God's people as a response to his grace and his kindness. Those are doctrine of salvation issues. They, are, they connect with uh, issues in the doctrine of salvation, um, some of which we've seen already. We'll make that explicit uh, in a moment or two. Uh, so the relationship continues to unfold um, in the days of Noah. It's interesting to note that uh, these two themes of God's grace and human faithfulness emerge again. Um, in Genesis 6, 9, uh, Noah is described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God, it says. Faithfulness. Now, what is interesting about this is we're not to imagine that Noah was sinlessly perfect. Um, faithfulness does not mean perfection. 
But here, Scripture uh, draws a distinction between uh, faithfulness and, on the one hand, unfaithfulness, and on the other hand, perfection. It's possible to be faithful like Noah without being perfect. And that faithfulness is not the same as just wickedness and rebellion, even though it would entail from time to time um, sinfulness. Now, this is going to be interesting to just bear in mind, particularly as we get to the days of Moses, because we're going to have to figure out what this faithfulness will actually mean in practice. What does it mean to be faithful, even though we're not perfect? That's something that ought to trouble all of us at some point. Um, am I being faithful? I know I'm not being perfect. That stands to, that's pretty straightforward to, to identify. Um, but am I a faithful man? Am I a faithful woman? Well, uh, the example of Noah suggests that it's possible, and the example of Moses and the covenant made in his day will show us a bit more about what that means, more on that in a second. Uh, but notice again, um, right here, uh, alongside the example of this faithful, righteous man, uh, Noah, you've got the manifestation of God's grace on which Noah is absolutely dependent. Not even this righteous man can swim for long enough to save himself from the flood. Again, it is the grace of God uh, that uh, leads the way. And the Lord tells Noah what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. Um, I'm going to keep you and two of every creature alive and seven of every, un of every clean creature alive. Here's what to do. You do everything I command you, and then it's all going to be okay. And that's what the Lord, that's what Noah does. Now, uh, just zooming on uh, past um, the end of the Noah narrative to the time of Abraham. Again, um, you see a whole bunch of different themes which we've touched on already emerging very, very clearly. First, God's choice of Abraham. Like, why choose him? Well, just God just did. There's no explanation given particularly. Uh, you've got his family tree uh, as the, the descent from Shem uh, all the way down uh, through Terah, uh, father Abraham, and then you've got all that at the end of um, chapter 11. And then the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your father's house and go to the land I'll show you. God's gracious choice, which seems to depend on nothing that Abraham has done before. And as we'll see in a second, uh, it certainly doesn't depend on anticipating Abraham's perfection thereafter. Notice again his grace. All these promises in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, which are really critical verses for uh, plotting the course of the rest of Scripture. They're gracious promises. God promises to give him a land. God promises to make his name great. God promises to make him into a great nation of people. Again, that's picking up the themes from um, Noah and uh, Adam earlier. God promises to bless him. Uh, with his presence and in other ways, which will be unfold, unfolded later as well. And God promises that through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is an eschatological uh, hint, which we'll get to when we talk about eschatology. Uh, right here in Genesis 12, you've got a hint of what God is planning to do for the whole world. Um, but what's striking in the, in the uh, ensuing chapters of um, Abraham's life is that God's grace operates in spite of Abraham's unfaithfulness. This is really remarkable. Um, the first thing, almost the very first thing that Abraham does after he's told by God that he's going to make him into a great nation of people, the implication being that you're going to have children, you and your wife Sarai are going to have children. Almost the first thing he does is give his wife away in Egypt, which is not exactly the 
first thing you'd think of doing if what you're planning to do is to live in accordance, faithfully in accordance with God's promise, that you're going to um, have a child or many children. And you, so God's plan runs up against the the moral impediment, so to speak, of Abraham's faithlessness in Genesis 12. It also runs up, of course, against um, what look like natural impediments, uh, the Sarah's barrenness and um, the famines and so on that take place. And so, but God's grace is going to plow through even that unfaithfulness. And it's remarkable um, that uh, uh, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul Paul says that Abraham did not waver through unbelief concerning the promises of God. And you look back here and think, really, didn't waver? I mean, this looks like wavering to me. Well, it's striking that um, from the perspective of Paul writing in Romans 4, um, that counts as not wavering. God's grace, so to speak, fills up that which is lacking, even in this kind of wavering faithfulness. Um, you get uh, a hint of where we're going later in the scriptures in the uh, monumental uh, example of uh, where Abraham really does display faithfulness in Genesis 22 when um, the, uh, the Lord tests him, says, take your son, your only son whom you love and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I'm going to show you, the mountain on which the temple would later be built. Um, and uh, this is a really dramatic narrative, which you know very well, I'm sure. Uh, Abraham's got the knife and he's got his son and he's literally you know, about to do this. And the angel of the Lord stays his hand. Um, uh, you can imagine Isaac looking a little nervous at this point. And then the Lord provides a uh, ram for the offering instead of his son. And now in reflecting on this, uh, the author of Hebrews says, well, Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead. Abraham's faith was specifically faith that God would raise the dead. And so if he'd been told that through Isaac, his son, his offspring would be reckoned, and then the Lord had said that he used to put Isaac to death as a burnt offering, then presumably God could raise to life the one who'd been sacrificed in accordance with God's will. Well, that might remind you of somebody, that God could raise to life the one who had been sacrificed in accordance with the will of God. This probably also... Um, clears up some of the puzzlement about uh, Romans 4, what we were talking about earlier. Now, how can Abraham be considered faithful um, uh, in uh, all the things that he did, which don't look terribly faithful? Well, this decisive test uh, that God lays before him, he did pass with flying colors, really. Um, the credit to him. And as at this point, the, Abraham's, the, the, the angel says, well, um, where is it now in um, uh, uh, verses 16 and following? Uh, uh, because you've done this and not withheld your only son from me, I will surely bless you um, and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that's on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of your enemies. It's because of this decisive act of faithfulness that God is going to keep his promises to Abraham. Now, again, all of that fits under the overall heading of what we discovered right at the beginning, just thinking about uh, what God did in creation, that all of these acts of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, all of these human decisions are within the plan which God had decreed as the creator. All of them in that sense are contingent upon God's will. God's will is the primary cause of all things. But these decisions are nonetheless real. Just because our decisions are not independent of God does not mean they're not real. And so this is something to wrestle with, that those day-to-day 
choices that we face to choose faithfulness or unfaithfulness, yes, those choices are decreed beforehand by Almighty God. And yet they are real choices for which we're really held responsible in the end, because they're our choices that we make. And there's a great deal more complexity we could go into about that. Maybe we'll do that another time. But you can start to see how those things interact a little bit by thinking about the life of Abraham there. Right. So let's zoom on um, and just think about how the relationship between God and his people develops in the days of Moses. It's important to recognize that this is not an entirely new thing. I highlighted this last time. But um, at the end of Exodus chapter 2, um, it's specifically God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that God remembers as he initiates the new phase of his relationship with his people in the days of Moses. So the Moses era, if you like, is a continuation of what God had already been doing in the days of Abraham. So how does God continue it? The answer is with a hugely more elaborate system of laws, uh, worship instructions, construction of the tabernacle, and a mighty act of deliverance, the Exodus. And it's worth just thinking about these things. Uh, we'll do, go, let's go in reverse order. This mighty act of deliverance, the Exodus, precedes the giving of the law. I just want you to think about that for a second. This mighty act of deliverance, the Exodus, for God's people, Israel, precedes the giving of the law. Therefore, Whatever the people are required to do in remaining faithful to the law cannot be a precondition for their redemption by God's grace in the Exodus because they just happened the other way round. God's grace precedes his giving of his law to his people. Uh, away with this nonsense that while under the Old Testament, the people were saved by obeying the law and in the New Testament, they're saved by God's grace. As though there's been some big switch, the relationship, and I've said this before, I'll keep saying it again and again and again, because it's so important that we get it. The relationship between God's grace and our response of faithfulness to his word, to his commandments, is exactly the same throughout the Bible. God's grace precedes everything always, all the time. And then secondly, on the subject of that law, that law itself is a manifestation of God's grace. I've remarked before, and again, we'll probably have to keep remarking, that law is not the best translation of the Hebrew Torah, which is used to describe what God reveals on Mount Sinai and then later expounds in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. Uh, the, the, a better word is teaching or instruction, and that conveys the sense that this is not uh, God setting the standard that we've got to reach in order to get in. This is God showing his people whom he loves how to live. It is, if you like, how to remain as his people. But even that is something of an oversimplification because it ignores the fact, which we'll come to in a second, about um, the instructions for building the sanctuary. Um, but really, this is God's gracious gift of instruction in how to live as his people. Don't you want to know how to live now? You can imagine him saying to his people, I've delivered you from slavery in Egypt. You want to carry on living like an Egyptian? Of course you don't. Don't you want to know me? Don't you want to walk in my ways? Let me graciously unfold to you all the words of my law, which will show you how to live 
as my redeemed people, and indeed will make you such an attractive nation to the other nations of the world, that if you live like this, you'll find they're flooding in because they want to get to know me too, because they think, what kind of God have you got who's got such wise instructions and laws as all this? We want to get to know him too. That's what Israel was supposed to do, according to the book of Deuteronomy. So then finally, uh, the third aspect that we're thinking about under this heading in the days of uh, Moses, uh, the law sets out instructions for the building of a sanctuary. For the first time, Israel has a uh, large central place for sacrifice and worship. This is the place where God will begin to fulfill in a dramatic and new way the promise he'd made to Abraham to bless him, to bless his descendants by being present with them. And what it requires is sacrifice. Uh, the narrative at the end of Exodus is, is really wonderful. And it's, it's so dramatic because what happens is you get the instructions for the building of the tabernacle first, and then the people go ahead and build it. And then Exodus 40, the, the presence of the Lord, the cloud and the fire sort of move in to the uh, to the, this great tent that's been built in the wilderness. And then you... Uh, the, you discover right the almost the final verse of the book the people of Israel and Moses himself can't go in because the Lord is there the Lord has blessed them with his presence there but now what are they supposed to do because they can't go in because he's holy and they're impure and unclean they can't come close just as Moses couldn't come close to the burning bush when God confronted him there so what's got to happen well beginning of the book of Leviticus um, the Lord says well when any of you comes near to me in the tabernacle bring a sacrifice and the whole of that book then elaborates what sacrifices are required and in what circumstances they're required for various kinds of sins and uncleanness and so on and so forth. And the book of Leviticus, of course, has at its centre the great day of atonement when all the sins of all the people can be atoned for. Um, and that needs to be repeated every year. So what you've got there, you see a whole bunch of new um, principles of the doctrine of salvation being highlighted. Already talked about the relationship between grace and law or between God's kindness to us in delivering us from sin and death and his kindness to us in showing us how to live as his people. What you see here is you start to see the place of sacrifice. What sacrifice does is it allows a sinful and impure people to come close to um, uh, a holy God. Now this, just casting our minds back to what faithfulness is, this is tremendously useful for helping us to understand what it means to be faithful. Faithful doesn't mean perfect. A faithful man will sin occasionally. He'll know that he's stepped outside the way of truth articulated in the law. But what's a faithful man going to do when he does that? Answer is, he will come back to the Lord in the sanctuary with the appropriate sacrifice to be reconciled to him. That's a faithful man. What an unfaithful person will do is not bother to go back to the Lord or go to some other God when he sins. And so if you, if you like, you can almost think of faithfulness. This isn't the most helpful way of thinking about it, but just illustratively, think of it as a middle way between unfaithful to God, walking away from him, from him completely, and absolute perfection, never stepping out of line. Well, there's only one man who's ever been absolutely perfect. What's required of us is to seek to live in the Lord's ways and to avail ourselves of the sacrifices which the law itself describes when we have stepped outside of his paths. And that, again, is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to under the new covenant.
just finally, we've got a couple more minutes left before we should wrap this up. Um, there is some significant development in the days of King David and the covenant, the Davidic covenant and the monarchy, which um, is established uh, during and after his reign. Of course, it's established before him, a bit of a false start in the days of Saul and one or two earlier kings. But really, David is the first king after God's own heart. And what happens there is, uh, well, a lot of detail, um, but but the the big ticket item to keep your eye on is that the aspect of Israel's calling, which previously had been centered around the people as a whole, this community, start to be more and more focused on the king as an individual. It's as though the king becomes a representative and figurehead of the people. So the promises, for example, that were made um, to Abraham and his offspring are now made to David specifically. And you see this, look in Second uh, Samuel 7. I won't go through every every one, but I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, verse 9, I will make of you a great, I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Well, that's exactly what God promised to Abraham. He said he would make of you a great name and that the people of Israel then would have this great name, the offspring of Abraham. Well, what God's doing here is he's saying, it's in David, the king, that all of these purposes will start to be focused instead of looking at the people as a whole what God's starting to do is to see okay how's the king getting on what's the king doing I'm going to focus my attention on the king as the representative of the people so when the king is good everything's great in the land and when the king goes bad everything goes sideways in the land so what that means then when you come to the fulfillment of all these God's purposes under the new covenant in Christ what you need is a faithful king above all else. And so along with re-articulating in Christological terms all the different things that we've seen so far about God's grace preceding, about our call to repentance and so on and so forth, Christ is that faithful king. He fulfills all the other aspects of God's plan so far, the perfect tabernacle, the sacrifice, the priest and everything else, and for the first time he's the faithful king to whom we may look, our head, our representative. So then, I think that's probably enough for now. We've um, worked our way through a whole bunch of different things. Um, I hope it's been helpful. Uh, We will be back in the next episode and we'll think about another area of Christian theology, which I think we may be able to dig into a little bit more using this framework. But until now, the Lord bless you. Until next time, God bless. Bye for now.